our beautiful lives and beautiful music that calls us to the beauty of holiness. Bless our young people, Lord. May they sense the upward call to the dedication and development of their gifts. And thank you for the blessed call to worship where these blessed notes and these blessed words could linger in this blessed place. Now, Lord, as we go to opening the word, I pray open our hearts and make us your people. Thank you that you have. Thank you that you are. Bless us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did Stephen get stoned? No, seriously. Why did they stone Stephen? He gets down to the end of his sermon, and he can tell that as the Holy Spirit is convicting, the people are agitated. And finally, he commits the Israelite unpardonable sin. He says, you stiff-necked people. You're just like the ones who died in the wilderness. This morning, in the providence of God, Uh, He has laid on my heart a journey for me, and since you're here or since you're watching, a journey for you. And I'm going to go on a journey that may make you feel uncomfortable, but if you're fortunate you've had a mother or a father or a previous pastor or a friend or a teacher or a brother or a sister or a child who has done the same thing. Because at the end of this journey here this morning, uh, it is by God's design, I believe, that every single person should have something to think about. Now, I'm going to start with a pretty startling story, and then I'm going to back up, and I'm going to show you that it could be you, or it could be me. And when you hear it at first, you're going to say, no. But I hope before it's all said and done, you say, I need to think about it. The Federalist, conservative website, so you all know how to interpret. I'm not here speaking politically, although for some people that's the only lens they look at life through. It's all political, because their God are the power agencies of coalition today. And that's the only way they look at life. They don't believe there's a God who sits encircled above the throne of the earth that still has people who speak according to the truth as it is in Jesus, at least the best they understand it, maybe needing to be corrected even. But just so everyone knows, listening, watching, or whatever, you can get my point of reference. This article comes from the Federalists. Federalists. So if you want to look it up 
on another website. Someone just happened to send this to me. Go ahead. I'm not preaching this morning as a political agent. However, unfortunately, in most of the developed world, the lines are clearly drawn. It just so happens that I believe the Bible speaks to this. And that's where I'll land by God's grace. It's entitled, from just this last week, Canadian Father Jailed for Talking About Court. That is the court ordering transgendering of his teenage daughter. I'll read you the first two paragraphs. Last week, this is modern history, friends. Robert Hoogland was arrested at the British Columbia Supreme Court in Vancouver for speaking against the court-ordered testosterone injections for his teenage daughter. Hoogland was denied bail, and Justice Michael Tammen issued an oral decision last Friday confining Hoogland to prison until his case is tried on April 12. Hoogland's arrest has garnered significant attention nationally and internationally and prompted an online petition for his release. Noted psychologist and author Jordan Peterson tweeted about the case repeatedly last Thursday, pointing out that he had predicted such imprisonment was inevitable back when he took his stand against the pronoun laws in Canada's Canada's Bill C-16. Yes, Jordan is a clinical psychologist, and some of you have listened to his stuff online. And he basically was willing to go to bat against the university he worked for and the laws of his province because he didn't feel it was their right to compel him how to speak. My subject matter this morning is not Peterson or transgenderism. My subject matter this morning is the right of a father of a 14-year-old girl to speak up and say a mistake is being made to not only allow but to court order the life-altering giving of testosterone to attempt to turn her from a girl into a boy and, and the father's right to talk about it. Now, if we would have thought years ago that the laissez-faire approach of religion in this country or our neighbor to the north should lead us to a place. It's not so much as Isaiah says in chapter 59, verse 14, that truth has fallen in the streets. It's that truth has stumbled in the streets and it has been run over by the bus of secular culture. And this man is a criminal of such sort that while he believes that at 14 you're not old enough to make life-altering, permanent life-altering, permanent physiologically life-altering decisions, and he should have the right to say so, the Canadian government in its wisdom believes no, and he's so dangerous to the situation that he should be confined in a place beyond reach of a microphone. Now, I want to know what sort of collective hubris, or another word for hubris, pride, arrogance. I want to know what sort of cultural collective hubris positions itself in such a way or place that a parent is now the enemy of the state and the child for suggesting that 14 is too young to make those decisions. Never me, pastor. 
Of course, I really ought to add into this conversation, what is it that happens collectively to a nation that's waited for millennia for a deliverer to where the deliverer would come himself, he would take on the form of a human being, he is God himself, and he could not be a teacher or corrector of the culture. How do we get there? Now, here we go. I have in my pocket some of the most repulsive things that exist in our society today. They're dirty. I wear one. Some of them may belong to you. I pick them up in the parking lot when I walk. I'm missing one. This one's cloth. Before it's dirty, it serves a function. After it's dirty, it's the new Kleenex or worse. These here are paper. This one might have belonged to a woman. I don't know. It looks like there's makeup across the white ridge. The good news about the black ones is you can wear them long after they're dirty and you don't know it. Now, I wear masks. And some of you are wearing masks right now, and I respect you for it. Sanctified caution is a good thing. You wear that mask, protect your health, do what you believe is right. Some of you are not. That's okay, too. But I've had a litany of things line up in my life over the last few months, and this morning I've got to talk with you about them. I flew back from El Salvador on Monday, and I sat next to a 37-year-old woman who works for a large university in the Midwest, which I won't name, and she had a mask on, and so did I. But I did something I don't usually do. I felt like it fit with the principles of Scripture. At the time, I could legitimately take my mask off and eat and drink. I didn't, and that's the first time in the last year I've done that. The stewardess or the flight attendant came by, and uh, I tend to wear those paper masks a lot, and there's a problem. I don't know what it is. I don't think they're quite big enough for me, but every time I talk, within a few words, it's coming down my face. And as the flight attendant walked by, she said, raise your mask up. So I raised it back up. And as I'm sitting in the seat next to this 37-year-old business major, marketing was her specific degree, where she works with a very large alumni association. The university is so big that they have 650,000 alumnus. In the first 30 seconds when you sit down, you find out if the person wants to talk. She had her tablet on her lap. It was a little Canada Air jet with two seats on both sides. And uh, I sat down. And within a few seconds, I decided I'd say hello. She responded. She made a conscious decision to talk to me the whole way from Washington Dulles to Indianapolis. She had a tablet on her lap, which she could have turned on at any time, and I would have taken it as an indicator I'm done talking, but she didn't. And 
my mask found its way down to the edge of my nose, and she reminded me, and I pulled it back up. I mention this to you because when she reached into her bag to get out her bottled Starbucks, and then later to get her little bag of peanut butter-filled pretzels, she was more zealous than most I've ever met. Um, she would turn her head away from me, lift the bottom of her mask, and take a sip. Same with the peanut butter-filled pretzels. So when I got my orange juice, I did the same thing. I would pull my mask down or up or whatever, and I'd take a sip, and I'd put it right back. I actually kind of enjoy that freedom that I get to take my mask off when I'm eating, even though the germs might be flowing out of my mouth the same way they were when I wasn't eating. I do appreciate the mask. Every time I hear someone sneeze in front of me, it's like, oh, I'm glad they've got a mask on. But why I'm bringing this to your attention is because when I... I, I decided I'm going to bring it up with her a little bit. And I, I brought up the dynamic of the mask. Why not? It's conversation. And what bothered me was that when I brought up the Great Barrington Declaration with almost 14,000 public scientists, epidemiologists, and experts in public health, she had never heard of it. Now, Mind you, some of you never have either. But his three principal authors are Dr. Martin Kuldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard University, a biostatistician and epidemiologist with expertise in detecting, monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine safety and evaluations. And last I checked, it's no mean school. And the next one on the list is Dr. Sunetra Gupta, professor at Oxford University, an epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, vaccine development, mathematical modeling of infectious diseases. And the third one is Dr. J. Bhattachara, professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations. So when we go from Ford to Ford to Ford, Harvard to Stanford to Oxford, and then, as I checked even just this morning, some 14,000, uh, 13,796 public health scientists and medical practitioners having signed it. At that point in time, I start to say to myself, is there anything wrong with this picture? But I'm not done. I'm holding in my hands here an email from someone I esteem greatly. And back in August of last year, long before there was any spike, this person wrote me a letter. It's a good email. As a matter of fact, as I reread it, I was impressed with the humility and the confidence of the author. They had three concerns. Number one, the policy of this church in not encouraging or overtly discouraging either, he says, I realize the wearing of masks. Should there be an outbreak of COVID among some who attend the services, 
It would bring many accusations and even animosity from the community, not just towards village, but Adventists in general. And that animosity would likely get widespread press within outside, outside of this county and possibly even nationally. Even small Christian churches that have had such outbreaks have been on the news from time to time bringing criticism from the national press. And then he goes on to say, it does give the appearance that this is a church that is defying the National Medical Experts Council and recommendations to wear a mask in order to make a point. So, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Point two. He reflects on his own mask wearing. And he says, after praying about this week, I've concluded that we are being wisely cautious. I respect him for that. Then he makes this sentence. He says, I feel I have something to protect. And then this sentence was particularly important to me. He said, I'm not trying to be defensive by telling you this. And then in parentheses he writes, though I may be, who knows their heart fully. But I do think there are some of us who are acting from sanctified caution rather than from ungodly fear. And I do believe that too. That's why I respect everybody's choices. And then there's the third point, probably the most objectionable part of the sermon, where I made a reference to places of worship that don't sing anymore. I spent the better part of an afternoon crafting a response. You know what the problem was? It was a Sabbath afternoon. And about two hours into crafting my response, I was convicted this is not Sabbath keeping. And you just need to be okay. So I wrote back. I said, it's always good to hear from you. I consider your role in my life one of great blessing. I won't take the time to read all the very positive affirmations I have for this person. Then I get into the paragraph that says, in village we practice a very diligent public health protocol without the enforcement of masks. You can wear one if you want. You don't have to if you don't feel like it. We were the first to open in Bering Springs. We've had two services every Sabbath for the last three months, as well as nine straight nights of camp meeting, almost three months of prayer meeting. Mind you, this was all back in August, a year ago. And all of these meetings, we've been rigorous in encouraging people to attend to practice social distancing. Your comments are appreciated. I'm glad you've written. I respect your decision, I write, not to go out and to deal with your groceries as you do. I didn't get into all that. As I mentioned last Sabbath in my sermon, the church's job is to challenge the strong and protect the vulnerable. Nobody should be out and about without confidence in God that they're not being presumptuous. However, nobody should stay at home from church, especially if they're going to work, the grocery store, without questioning whether or not they're living by faith or fear. As for how your mask wearing would be interpreted... Some of this is corporate culture, what we create here, and some is your personal projection. We have both that attend village regularly and consistently. We are practicing and preaching an environment of choice and respect for all. Unfortunately, there are many in the community who are informed only from one perspective and with some with much hubris 
or, or arrogance. And yes, if COVID breaks out in this community, meaning the village church, we will be embarrassed. And if it doesn't, will anyone else need to be farther down the road? That's seven months ago. As for sanctified caution, I respect it. Men's hearts are failing them from fear, and with it, so the mission of the church. Cuts to pastoral budgets, potential letting go of teachers. As my sermon noted, there are many aspects of public health, including a paycheck and all the resulting security that comes with it. And lastly, for singing as opposed to humming, the world's new virtue is the leader or the leadership team who shows the most caution. While articulating caution is a function of leadership, I'm a dad of four kids. <laughs> I've taught caution. Most generally, the leader's primary battle is overcoming fear to act in faith. If your church or any church believes that their policies will motivate the young, challenge the middle-aged, encourage the seniors, comfort and protect the aged, and move God's mission along, then I encourage you to stick to your policies. Hopefully all the while, and listen to this, friends, because you're starting to get the cords unplucking for the message. Hopefully all the while being humble enough to acknowledge that most science regarding this topic at the moment is anecdotal without double-blind studies. And if those policies of another church are reinforcing fear, then we have a deadly spiritual pandemic on our hands, one that will cost people their eternal life. Now, I respect that person to the nth degree. And I respect them even more for writing. This was last August. And I respect them for the spirit of the way they wrote. But the question I have for this person and every other person is, when does life experience have the power to change your mind? How many months and how many thousands of human encounters have to take place under the arches of this edifice before someone says, that's living science too? It was evident to me that the 37-year-old marketing professional in one of our large universities had only ever looked to know what was easily digestible and all across the sound waves. But this morning, I'm telling you, if you're going to be a Seventh-day Adventist, you will have to be a Berean, and you will have to love the truth. And it won't be enough for you to find a truth that conveniently insulates you from the risk journeys and the faith journeys of life. Listen to me, folks, because some, at some degree, some of you are very much immersed in this with me. Either I am and you are the most presumptuous, the most political, or maybe the most balanced and faithful. Which is it? And at what point in time would you change your mind? Which is really the point of this message. Let's move on to another subject. Let's go back a ways to another item to divide us. Let's go back to women's ordination. 
You know, for three or four years, there was something called TOSC. It was the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. And it was loaded with pastors and scholars. And after months and months of study, they came and they gave a report to the General Conference. And one wise sage in the meeting stood up after the vote was declared on how people felt. And perhaps there was someone there that can tell the story better than me, for I was not. And he asked one simple question. How many people changed their minds? Why do I hear a few giggles out there? Because the answer was zero. Let's go a little closer to home. Just three weeks ago, Tim Rosenberg was standing in this pulpit. And I know every time I invite Tim, I'm going to get some criticism. But I know that night by night, 2,000 devices were hooked up to the meetings before the next meeting started, and there were 150 people in this congregation on average. But I knew I was going to get some criticism. And just for the record, some of you didn't notice it, but when Tim got up to preach the very first Friday night, he and I had had a conversation, Pastor Tim, I should say, and I said to him, Pastor, I probably said, Tim, it's very important that you announce that your views do not represent this church. Oh, why does he need to say that, Pastor? Why does he need to say that? Because it's true. There's at least three major beliefs about the King of the South in Daniel chapter 11. So why does Tim get to come back and talk here? Number one, because Tim is a humble student of the Word, and he is willing to get up and make those speeches that say, I don't know everything, and I could even be wrong. Now, there's a novel thought for a postmodern world. Why does Tim get to preach what he preaches? Because I believe he presents it in the humility of Christ as the best he understands right now. And I especially don't like it when people try to tamp down different ideas and suggest they are the arbiters of intellectual, theological, academic thinking. That just something that goes against the Protestant Reformation and everything that's in my bones as a Seventh-day Adventist. Three years ago, I had a person of high learning who wrote me a letter. And in that letter, they basically said that people like me shouldn't make decisions like that. The not-so-subtle suggestion was that I didn't know enough about this subject matter. And then, in the process of their letter, which I have right here, and again, another person I respect, they even go so far as to quote Ellen White. And the quote comes from the last day events where it says, many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. Whoa! This pastor just got run over. It's like, is that me? So I decided to do what any good student should do. I decided to go read it in context. I have it right here. 
And if the person who sent me this would have read it in context, he would know it had nothing to do with about various views on obscure parts of Bible prophecy. But instead it had to do with men who did not possess the prophetic courage to call sin by its right name, which is what I'm doing this morning. The sin of pride of opinion. We don't set up idols of stone and gold in our homes. We set up idols of ideas in our heads, and nobody can tell us we're wrong. As a matter of fact, in the course of events, I received a text. I don't know who sent this one. Here's what it says. Now, I'd like for you to put your best spiritual judgment on as I read the text. I saw that Village is having Tim Rosenberg speak. When I saw that on Friday, I had to turn it off. Now, listen, this person may be watching right now. And if you are, I don't know who you are. But if you're the person who wrote this text, listen to what I'm about to say and listen to your text again. Is Tim Rosenberg so bad and so off that when you see him standing behind a pulpit, you just can't stomach it and you hit the off button? I'm surprised that Village is giving him this platform. There's another little cut or slam. There were those who wanted him to speak, and he names a church several years ago, so we had to look into his teaching. And what I remember is that his understanding of Islam's role in the end times can't be supported by Scripture or the spirit of prophecy. Well, I know people think that. Please listen carefully to what he says and be willing to speak so that others are not misled. Whoa. Now, mind you, if you weren't here on Friday night and he didn't hear it, hear it again from me. I don't endorse what Tim Rosenberg believes about Islam in Daniel chapter 11, but it doesn't mean I don't agree with it, and it doesn't mean I shouldn't study it. How about you? I'd like to know how many people are even bothering to crack open a prophetic chapter in the Bible these days, which is why I bring him here, because I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt we are people of a prophetic message, but nobody knows the messages, and I also know this, that 80% of what he presented is his plain old good old-fashioned Adventist prophetic preaching, and it changes lives. We had one person write us who said, At the end of his series, I'm no longer afraid to die. What's that worth, friends? Someone sent me this text just this morning. Whenever this happens, I want to tell you, my back gets a little stronger and my voice a little bit more confident because they didn't know what I was preaching on. Someone who attended these meetings called someone in this church. They called out of the blue sky this week inquiring about paying tithe. All this culminating over the years at the Daniel 11 presentation by Tim Rosenberg. Now, the last I checked, most people don't part with their hard-earned cash unless the Holy Spirit is plucking the cords of their heart. And when you study theodicy, which is how can bad things happen when there's a good God, 
Those last few nights in Pastor Tim's presentations, I want to tell you my heart just thrilled with the goodness of the God I serve. And if you haven't watched them, you need to watch them. One more before we open the Bible. It'll be one of the longest introductions to a message. I was studying the Bible with someone who saw life through a different theological lens than many of you. I'm not going to tell you the subject matter. Good Seventh-day Adventist people, at least culturally. And I said to them, I said, we don't necessarily have to agree on this subject matter. It's a broad enough subject matter that maybe we can't pin down everything. But the more I studied and thought about it, I realized they did not afford me that same intellectual room to be a little bit different. Why? Because if I was different, I was in apostasy. Now that gives you a very high vantage point from which to critique somebody else. If you've got the truth and everybody else is in apostasy, and here's what I figured out was a common thread through all of it. Complete, absolute pride of opinion from beginning to end. Nobody in any of these scenarios, with the exception of the first uh, email I read from, nobody thought for a second they might be wrong. And if you think that the humanity of the human race has somehow improved in your generation, you might want to think again because should I be up here today to talk about dress and adornment or money or entertainment or something else like that, you could be as angry at me as the person who doesn't like any of the things I just brought up. Yes, we are the frog in the kettle and the postmodern mentality of being the deliberating uh, determinant of what is truth for me doesn't matter what mom and dad says doesn't matter what my brother says doesn't matter what my pastor says doesn't matter what the teacher says leave me alone I'm doing okay don't rain on my parade now let's go to Gamaliel go to Acts chapter 5 here's a man that I never want you to look at the same way I want when you walk out of here today I want you to have a role model for how to live in an age of arrogance, in a postmodern culture that'll step on people if they dare to stand up and speak up against the norm. Now, mind you, let's do it in as respectful a way as possible, which is, I'm sure, what Peter and John were doing. But when Peter and John were let out of prison and they were right back at what they had been told not to do, couldn't you get the message? Going to jail is our way of saying, don't do this. But the angel says, go back and preach in the temple. And that's where they're at when they summon them before the Sanhedrin. The problem is, is that Peter won't deviate from truth. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you'd put to death by hanging him on a tree. 
He's not backing up one moment. The gospel arraigns us before the bar of justice. The cross is something seen done by us before it's seen as something done for us. He's the one whom God exalted at his right hand and a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And there's the zinger. You can't run from the Holy Spirit. Don't like the preacher? Go to church somewhere else. Don't like your parents? Move out on your own. Can't stand the teacher? Go to a different school. Don't like your boss? Go find a different one or maybe become a boss. But the truth of the matter is run where you may. The Holy Spirit still cuts to the quick. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And because their idea was so fragile, vis-a-vis false, they intended to kill them. My, oh my. If you've got a good idea, friends, don't worry. It'll stand on its own merits. If you're doing what's right, don't be afraid. It will support itself. It can bear up under the burden of scorn It'll be around when the scorners are gone. But you better be willing to be your own person as you understand it with God because in the end, there's no excuses. God talks to people. And that's what he was doing there. So it's almost time for these men to meet the same fate as Jesus, only theirs won't be prolonged. It'll be quick and over. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up. Now, if there's one thing I hope everybody takes away from this, it's enough humility to let the cords of the Holy Spirit pluck your heart so that you can be moved out of sometimes falsely created comfort zones to be in zones that will create new comfort when new crises come. But the man stood up, and then he spoke up, and everybody listened up. And we should be carrying ourselves in such a way that even if we don't like, if people don't like what we said, they have to note that we stood up and we spoke up, and they at least listened up enough to have a slight change of course. And for those people who have subscribed to the wrong ideology of maintaining the relationship at all costs, let me remind you, relationships are like muscles. They are to be strained at times for the sake and well-being of the one and the function upon whom the spiritual muscle, the muscle of conviction works. And because he carried himself in such a way, he was a man of complete integrity, intellectually, spiritually, relationally. And if we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians will live like this, people will listen to us too, even if they don't change. But it'll be a speed bump on this massive highway to eternal destruction and the destruction of a good life on this earth. He stood up and he spoke up and they listened up and the council gave orders to put the men outside. Wise man. He said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you purpose to do with these men. And then he goes through a list of people, people that acted out of place. Verse 40, they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And what'd they do? 
They went away praising God, probably 39 stripes. I heard somebody this week, or last week maybe, that the man who played Jesus Christ in the movie The Passion of the Christ, old movie, when they were doing the 39 lashes, one of the lashes, they had a board underneath his costume. One of the lashes missed the board. I don't want you to think about this guy any other way. Gamaliel. He was not, the Apostle Paul had all the privileges of a Roman citizen. I'm reading from the only white comments in the Sixth Bible Commentary. He was not behind in Hebrew education, for he had learned at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, friends, we don't know, but that Paul is in the room. Can't prove it one way or the other. How do we know what was said? Peter and John were put outside. But this man who stood up was Paul's primary teacher. His PhD was earned at the feet of Gamaliel. With all this scientific and literary education, talking about Paul now, or Saul more correctly, he was until Christ was revealed to him in complete darkness, as are many at this time. The report of the guards at the tomb, writing in manuscript release 115. The watch appointed to guard the sepulcher came into the city. They appeared like men who had been greatly frightened. Their faces were colorless. Going to the chief priests and the rulers, they told them what they had seen at the sepulcher. They had not time to think or speak anything but the truth. That's the Roman soldiers, the 100. They, th- they thought their story would at once commend itself to the supposedly righteous men who had employed them, but the rulers were not pleased by the report. You say, what's new, Pastor? Well, it's the next sentence. Joseph and Nicodemus we're not with them at this time. Okay, that's not what we're talking You're right. It's the next sentence. Gamaliel was not with them, for the report of the recent transactions had reached them. I'll skip quickly over the next one. It's basically a quote from the life of Paul, life sketches of Paul. And in it, she talks about Paul walking through Jerusalem just before they captured him in the sanctuary and almost killed him. And he walked by the school where he went to school with Gamaliel. He walked by the spot where Stephen was stoned. He was reminiscing all of this. He was remembering, she writes, how bitter had been his own prejudice against the followers of Christ. He felt the deepest pity for his deluded countrymen, and yet how little hope could he feel that he'd be able to benefit them. The same blind wrath you got a fragile idea and you get mad when somebody challenges it? It might be blind wrath. The same blind wrath which had once burned in his own heart was now an untold power kindling the hearts of a whole nation. As he looked upon those who were to be his judges, he recognized many who had been his associates in the school of Gamaliel. And they had also united with him in persecuting the disciples of Jesus. What a turning of tide. But now, back to Gamaliel himself. Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, but in the council there was one man, just one, who recognized the voice of God in the words spoken by his disciples. He's not just a learned man. He's not just an intellectual. He's not just esteemed. He doesn't just have status. There's a reason. The man is a man of integrity. This was Gamaliel a Pharisee of good reputation and a man of learning, his clear intellect saw that the violent step contemplated by the priest would lead to terrible consequences. And then this last commentary, she writes, he knew 
that the murderers of Christ would hesitate at nothing in order to carry out their purpose. Now down to first spiritual gifts, she writes, the crowd was planning how to do this, slay the apostles, when an angel from God was sent to Gamaliel to move upon his heart to counsel the chief priest and the rulers. Oh, the plot thickens. And then in Testimonies to Ministers, she writes, then Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, pleaded in behalf of the apostles, and his words prevailed. And then one more. Then the Holy Spirit moved upon Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a doctor of the law, who had a reputation among the people. And lastly, the Apostle Paul had all the privileges of a Roman citizen. He wasn't behind, for he had learned at the feet of Gamaliel, but this did not enable him to reach the highest standard. Listen, friends, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you don't want to fall into the plight of the Pharisee or the Sadducee or the men gathered in this hall in Acts chapter 5, if you'd actually like to see the face of Jesus, make sure you're listening because I've run into scads of Seventh-day Adventists who collect their own ideas around them in some semi-sanctified religious form of postmodernism, and the Holy Spirit's not getting through no matter what happens. And it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. It just has to cross the grain of their lives. And they shut the voice off. They turn down the volume. All of this Learning at the feet of Gamaliel did not enable him to reach the highest standard. With all the scientific and literary education, he was until Christ was revealed to him in his complete darkness, as many at that time. But Paul became fully conscious that to know Jesus by an experimental knowledge was for his present and his eternal good, and he saw the necessity of reaching a higher standard. Some of you listening to me here today have good reason not to listen. Somebody in your home, maybe a dad, maybe a mom, was a walking hypocrite who couldn't dare have a bad reputation go out about you, which was a reflection on them. Some of you have sat under the tutelage of teachers who were nothing but whitewashed sepulchers. Some of you have had pastors in your life who were play actors and good orators, but they were nothing more than hired servants. But none of that stands between you and a God that's bigger than the problems you have. There's an experiment that's waiting to go on. It's you connecting with the living Christ. And that nerves you to be humble and honest. And that humility gives you the confidence to stand up, speak up, and you don't know who might listen up. This higher standard is reached by going lower in the estimate of your own self. This higher standard is by realizing that some of your ideas might be wrong. I can remember in the, the work up to the last general conference session and all the hubbub over women's ordination, and I sat watching Loma Linda Broadcasting Network once, and John, Dr. John Pauline, one of my former professors, much esteemed in my mind, clearly on the side of pro-women's ordination. He can be there. But when the program came to an end, he said this, and all of a sudden, he just skyrocketed in my opinion. He said, you know, we may all get to heaven and find out we were wrong. 
I don't know that I ever heard a single other person in four or five years of wrangling, fighting, arguing, you might say, I don't know that I ever heard one other person ever say anything even close. Don't you think that Paul, as a younger man, maybe even before the stoning of Stephen, because there were three and a half years from the death of Christ to the stoning of Stephen, from A.D. 31 to A.D. 34. Don't you think Paul might have wandered by his much-esteemed professor? I mean, he brings him up two times. Well, he brings him up once. The narrative brings him up once. Don't you think he would have maybe wandered by Gamaliel's office and said, hey, professor, you got a minute? I want to talk to you. What do you think of this thing, the way? What do you think of this Jesus? Do you think a man whose heart is plucked by the Holy Spirit under great duress and humongous peer pressure? Do you think an angel sent from God? Do you think all that happens overnight? Or do you think maybe a man who has that kind of courage has been listening to the prompts of the Holy Spirit for a little while? And do you think it's just possible that Saul might have said, what do you think of this? And do you really think that Gamaliel is just turning on a dime here and there, that he's a little speedboat in the youth of his life? Or maybe he now has the status of a mighty theological leader in Israel with kind of that ocean-going mystique and majesty. And don't you kind of think that there's a possibility that he might have said, Saul, you need to think about this a little bit. Is it possible that the animosity of Saul in destroying the church is a reflex against his professor who would stand up to keep the church from being destroyed by the mighty machine of Pharisaism and Sadduceeism gone wrong? I want you to think about it. Or are we just in a duck and cover phase of our lives? Adventist arrogance. It doesn't look too different to me than Phariseeism. Just know you're so cocksure right that you never pray and re-examine what you believe to see if there's anything to what they're saying. Where are you at, friends? There's nothing like a good theological idea to reinforce pride of heart. There's nothing like a good medical reason to look down your nose. What I decided was, was that there are some on either side of this whole masking thing that categorically just look down their nose. But where are the people that are humble enough to say, you know, I ought to look at this again. My friend who wrote me that email, more than once in his letter, he put parenthetically statements that said, I'm writing to you, but I might be wrong. And I can't judge my own heart very well. And then what I didn't tell you was the next day, he wrote me again. with some very kind thoughts. It was kind all the way through. I respect this person. You go on, mister. Just be careful. Because as we come to the end of the age, the postmodern elevation of self-ideas fits perfectly 
in a secular way with the hubris, the religious hubris, arrogance and pride of the nation that crucified Christ. Are you a humble person? Can anybody tell you you're wrong? Do you listen to your spouse? I had somebody in here visiting with me yesterday. After they shared what they wanted to share, I said, what does your spouse think? I said, I agree with your spouse. The only way you have peace going forward, friends. So, so here's the deal. Was I jabbing at people in the community when I talked about humming instead of singing? Or was I prodding them? If English isn't your first language, it may not set on you quite the same way. Did I just want to poke out my frustration at somebody else? Or maybe I am to challenge the strong. And maybe you are too. Or was I prodding somebody? Think carefully about what you're doing. Because the human heart will naturally gravitate into a channel of comfort, especially if it can get a good idea to shield it from the voice of the Holy Spirit. Where are you at? Jesus went to a cross for you, friends. He had to listen to the people cursing and scorning and mocking him. He had to listen to the sound of the hammers, people that were utilizing the atoms forged into big structural thugs of iron pointing spikes through the flesh that he had created. He had to be subject to the wrongdoing of many, and in legitimacy he could have stood up and said, no more. But he learned through suffering how to be perfect. Not that he was mistaken or flawed in any other way, but he walked the walk you and I walk, suffering like we suffer. And all the while, in every legitimacy, he could have turned the tables over, but instead, he let wrong people make wrong decisions that led to the most glorious statement of love and truth ever be told. That thief dying on the cross was cursing Jesus just a few minutes ago. But I leave you with him today as the invitation. While he watched Christ, his hard heart changed. He had rebelled against mom and dad and priest and policeman and soldier and everybody else. But watching Jesus on the cross his hard heart changed. And he went from cursing to calling out, Lord. The first verse on the day of Calvary, the first voice to interject hope. He's been betrayed and denied. He's been abandoned and mocked and derided. But the first voice is the voice of a man who came full of himself enough to curse God. But he looked at Jesus long enough where he could look at himself with hope and he got it. Where are you at? Are you looking at Jesus enough to say, okay, Lord, you can move me, you can change my mind. 
You can have all of me there is. I'm going to go where you go. And of course, I couldn't leave without reminding you that a man on the way to Damascus, so full of himself that he would kill women and commit them to prison with their kids, met a Jesus who wouldn't leave him alone. Spirit of Prophecy says every night when he put his head down on his pillow, the voice of Stephen was talking to him. Not literally. I'm paraphrasing. And finally, Jesus stepped in and he said, it's hard to kick like this. It's over. And Saul says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And of course, while we're at it, that man, Ananias, go see him. You mean the guy who came here to murder all of us? Yes, go see him. And he's humble enough to do it. There's only one road to the kingdom, friends. Do justly, love mercy, and could you help me with the last? Walk humbly. Otherwise, You'll be on the low end of the standard and you'll be full of yourself. God forbid. And it's for all watching online or all listening in this auditorium. May we make sure we get the walk humbly part right because it breeds the greatest confidence, the greatest respect, and the greatest impact. Not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ. Be seen, be known be heard. Amen. Stand together. As we sing our closing hymn, number 570, it'll be on the screens.